0: Welcome to the second episode of the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and today I'm going to share a conversation that I recorded recently with Gordon Erickson. Gordon has an IMDb bio you can check out, but it's pretty short in its entirety. It reads, Gordon Erickson, and that's E-R-I-K-S-E-N, is a director and writer known for The Big Dis, 1989, Scenes from the New World, 1994, and Lena's Dreams, 1997. He has been married to Heather Johnstone since 1989. This bio says they have one child, I think they actually have two. But I think the most important things uh, to know getting started is that Gordon lives in Brooklyn, New York City, and he is a former independent filmmaker, possibly a future independent filmmaker, but currently (laughs) he's an art photographer. So here is my conversation with Gordon Erickson. Hello, and welcome to the Padverb Podcast. I am your host, KMO, and I am speaking with Gordon Erickson. Uh, I am in Arkansas right now, but I used to live in
1: Brooklyn, and I understand that you do as well. I I do live in Brooklyn. I live in Park Slope. Mm -hmm. I've lived here off and on since 1983, and I have a photo and video studio in Gowanus, Brooklyn that I walk to every day, seven days a week, with my dog, because I Besides shooting here and doing digital marketing here, I, I also work out, I do Pilates on machines between blocks of staring at screens <laughs> in order to offset my my hunch from sitting in a computer. And I I, I moved in here a month into COVID because I could no longer really work in my home office. And I right now I have a pretty good work life balance, I think. So you are a filmmaker or were a filmmaker and well uh, i I hope I do get to make another film or two but i i made I made four features that played theatrically and that I sold a cable mm-hmm. and domestically and in europe and i've I made some short films that played film festivals and that didn't really have a commercial release but my mm-hmm. first film, which was my college senior was my senior thesis just happened to be an early like rap music film that had a rap soundtrack and and it actually starred my friend about about a a young guy in the military on his first weekend pass trying to get laid essentially and the name of the film it was called the big dis okay i just saw a clip from it just before we talked oh I saw
0: the clip of the the young man going to a party in somebody's backyard and there's a guy playing guitar. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes,
1: right. Right. So yeah, I mean and he's sort of a fish out of water. He's Jamaican American guy and that particular scene is a bunch of like blue-collar Irish white guys who are playing heavy metal, but he's (laughs) he's just checking the party to see, you know, if there's any action to be had. I actually had to stop watching
0: the clip because I get really skeeved out by comedy that is based on people's social anxieties and inadequacies. So the guy who's really uncomfortable at the party, you know, full of people that he's not connecting with that just really.
1: I mean, it, 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 generally that the movie is pretty light, lighthearted. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it <laughs> the I the, the mean, car- I mean sort of the shaggy dog story. The joke is that he'll go anywhere and to chat with anyone you know, in his search for success on his, in his mind, he has to get laid on his first weekend pass. That's what young soldiers do. So there's a long scene where he is asking these two middle schoolers if they have any older sisters who, and they're washing a dog and, 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 and he's, uh, does your, do your friends have older sisters or just the most <laughs> pathetic series of inquiries until their boss, the older sister comes out and says, why are you talking to these girls? Go away. And he has to leave, you know, but it, it just happened that that movie that was right when there was just beginning to be kind of an American independent, the new wave independent American film movement. I think it was called Ameri Indies, not the, not the new wave of the seventies, but mumble core, you know, a lot of young kids that could get cameras and leftover film and make films very cheaply and um so it it got a distributor the same company that distributed uh a film called wild style which very famous hip-hop sort of it's not a documentary one the the the, the earliest hip-hop movie fab five freddy is the main character in it and so the big disc actually played a lot of theaters it was on cable we sold the rights to remake it as a feature to actually chris rock and we sold the tv rights to hbo to make it into a series and they cast michael rapaport as me (laughs) over seymour um hoffman who is deceased now but it never got past pilot never aired But that was a very bad introduction in the film industry because we made this no budget film and it made lots of money for for us, as opposed to like box office. But like we could live for years on all of that. Then every film we made after that, three more features made, there were fewer and fewer theaters and it was harder and harder to get a distributor, but we managed to sell things to cable. My last film, which is called The Love Machine, played in the year 2000 and probably made the most money for the producer, but it did absolutely zero for my career. (laughs) Mm. And for about that 10, 12 years, most of the money we earned was, was as screenwriters. They'd say, we need some young hip kids to do a draft of this script. And, And I think I, I worked on 10 Hollywood scripts, none of which were produced, but at least I got paid my writer's guild fee, you know? Then everybody began making video features, and the market was flooded with, right, with pro- it, it used to be people, it, once upon a time, until the early aughts, everyone had a screenplay, but very few people had a film. And film festivals were desperate f- to fill their schedules. Then in the early aughts, when suddenly people said, I can make a feature on VHS tape, um, that was sort of the the end of the whole economy of making films like we had on film and being able to sell them to someone because where there once were 10 films up for sale, then there were a thousand. Right.
0: And now, you know, with iPhones deliberately marketed as, Hey, we've got uh, selective focus. Now you can, you can do a rack focus in one shot and go from, you know, one person to another.
1: Yeah. iPhones racking focus. I still, to this day, do a lot of industrial filmmaking, where we shoot executives and interviews and apartment tours and architecture. And to, we're, we're using iPhone 13s on, on gimbals now. I mean, it, it's, if, I, if I were to make another no-budget film, I would probably shoot it on iPhones. Double system sound, but I would, I would originate the video on, on phones probably. Say that again, what were you saying about the sound? I I would do double system sound, meaning that we'd record the sound completely separately digitally, you know, with, with overhead mics, but we'd originate the picture on iPhones. That way we'd have a really good audio track and we don't have to worry about the phones, you know, being plugged into the, the the audio equipment, but, but that's how, that's how bad it's gotten is that, you know, now you can, you can make a film with an iPhone, a good film too. Yeah. No,
0: I mean, the, The image quality is excellent it is yeah but you know it's it's so democratized that as you say the the internet is just flooded with what would be uh somebody's you know breakout film like if it was came out in the 70s or the 80s or something you know when there weren't so many people doing it but yeah when i first started podcasting back in 2006 it was pretty easy to get guests uh, because there was no competition Yeah. You know, (laughs) now it's now that I've been doing it for 16 years, it's actually more difficult to, uh, you know, to keep the pipeline full.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody's got a podcast. It's it's frightening. Yeah. I, I have a friend who had a successful company, mostly making nature documentaries. And during covid, you know, basically all production shut down. He had to retool as a podcasting company. And while he has made his own podcasts and some have been successful, mostly the business has become renting suites to podcasters. He has a line out the door of people who have ideas for podcasts or want to professionalize their podcasts and they want sound editors and effects. And I just am astonished at how many people have jumped on the podcasting bandwagon in in the last two years.
0: Yeah. But, you know, if you are an artist or if you are a writer or any sort of creative um, career, if somebody goes to your website and you've got either podcasts of your own or links to places where you've appeared on another podcast, sitting and listening to two people talk for 20 minutes or an hour is one of the best ways to get a feel for who they are and what they're about. Well, that's I agree.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, you were mentioning earlier how you did pretty well financially on the big disc because you sold the rights, uh, the TV rights to HBO and the film rights. I forget what studio you mentioned, but, um, you know, Alan Moore, the, um, the British comic book writer.
1: What are his comic books?
0: Well, probably he's best known for uh, Watchmen. Yeah. And V for Vendetta. Yeah. Uh, the okay. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I, I was about to guess Watchmen, yeah. but
1: I, I didn't want to be mistaken. Yeah, he, so. uh,
0: he really revived the character of Swamp Thing with his run on it. But he, he sold film rights to all of his big you know, novels that he had written, or graphic novels, uh, thinking that they would never get made into films. Right. And he just wanted the money, you know? Right. And when they did get made into films, he was aghast. He hates them. Yes. <laughs> and he wanted his name taken off of all of them. So I believe it. The... Um, one of the authors of the screenplay for the movie Battlefield Earth, possibly one of the worst big-budget films ever made. Ever made. Uh, It's his only IMDb credit, but he is a very successful uh, teacher of (laughs) scriptwriting. And he realizes... And and the film doesn't necessarily reflect his talent as a screenwriter. It's just that... And he's written many, many scripts. It's just the one that got made was Battlefield Earth.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's the way it goes. Yeah. I I, I mean, I really realized, like, I, I like being on set and solving problems making movies. And I did enjoy being in theaters with audiences. But I quickly realized I didn't enjoy writing screenplays or teleplays because it's kind of a lonely business and nothing ever gets made the way you've written it. And I had zero interest in television especially in streaming, because the way you're sort of alone on your iPad watching the product. And I guess for me, like independent film playing in the bleaker, the long gone Bleecker Street Cinema was a lot more like off-Broadway theater or something. It was like a group exercise. And as the number of art house theaters have dwindled, I've just sort of sadly lost a lot of interest in I don't want to, I don't want to stream any films on, on my television. I want to see them in the theater, you know? Hmm. So it's harder and harder imagining how to make a film that would actually attract an audience, even putting aside COVID.
0: Right. So given your experience and given the changing marketplace and the changing expectations of audiences and the technology and just what you want to do, you know, when you think about making films in the future, what do you envision doing?
1: Well, you know, in in terms of no budget filmmaking, typically you you re, you need either a very clever idea, or you need a very good actor who's about to be famous but is not famous yet, mm-hmm. or you need a fantastic location. <laughs> the the one thing I've contemplated that that I feel like is very very hard to do for others, but that I could do is a food movie, you know. Mm -hmm. i mean if you think about the there are not that many food movies because it's very very hard to make babette's feast you know or or big night or or like water for chocolate because it's it's very hard to realize food that characters actually eat on screen with enthusiasm and so i have a i have a very pretty wine shop that i could make a food movie in Mm -hmm. um that's the nearest thing i have to you know i have a script outline which I was working on before COVID and then I've sort of not finished it because even now I would not want to be on a set, you know, for, for a couple of weeks, even with everybody vaxxed and boosted, it just would not. I mean, but yeah, I, I think I could make an iPhone food and wine movie uh, and, and with wine, you know, people are very pretentious about it. And regular wine drinkers hate fancy wine drinkers because they, you can't understand what the heck they're talking about, you know, And I could certainly have things that would demystify, you know, I have a character who is a pretentious wine person that annoys everyone else. And then I could have, then I have another character who adds ginger ale to her wine, but could actually come around and begin liking wine. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's my best idea at this point. It would would probably be pleasurable to see it on a big screen, a lot of sexy food shots. And with iPhones, you can actually, Get the food on the table and have it look edible and see somebody actually eat it i mean yeah if you think about the the few food movies you don't actually see a lot of people eating you see a lot of fake reactions and you see sh- glamorous shots of the food but it's very very rare that you see a food narrative and people are actually or, or um a tempopo have you ever seen the movie tempopo japanese noodle oh yeah film hmm that was the one about the woman
0: who wanted, That's she right. ran a noodle shop and it was terrible. Right. Yes, She'd she yes. go and steal other people's
1: secrets. <laughs> it's it's a noodle Western. Yeah. These two truck drivers roll into town in cowboy hats and she's like the widow on the ranch. Right. And and that movie, they, they eat the food with great enthusiasm. And if you watch it today, be prepared to run out and get some noodles. Like don't watch it if you have no access <laughs> to uh to a decent Japanese noodle joint. Right. Uh,
0: you know, when you first mentioned food movies, the one that leapt to mind for me was Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is an Ang Lee film. I, right? I know that film well, too. Yeah. That's a movie where they don't actually eat the food, though. Well, the the premise of the film is that you've got this very accomplished chef who, in his old age, Loses is, yeah, he person. has no sense of taste, exactly. He can't possibly enjoy his food. But just the opening montage of him preparing that meal, you know, yeah. and doing it Slaughtering the chicken, grabbing a live carp out of the pond. And yeah. It's
1: just it's there's it's, a lot of that that's all called process. And the process mm-hmm. is very pleasing it's another thing about food movies, is you go from a live carp to a cooked carp on a plate. Mm-hmm. So process is very pleasing in film. But but that movie, which has gorgeous food shots and and has perfectly good family dynamics and subplots about the daughters. But that i i consider that barely a food movie it's just a frame because actually nobody ever eats the food or is emotionally moved by the food they sit down to sunday meal and then have a fight over the food and nobody eats the food because it's been sitting (laughs) in the next room for two days you know right i don't really remember the characters except for the chef
0: and one daughter from the film i mean it wasn't it wasn't particularly memorable in that respect it's Which is, you know, Ang Lee went on to do The Ice Storm, which is a brilliant, you know, family and and psychological drama. Yeah. But Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, at
1: least in my memory, is all about the food. He also made the version of the Hulk where the Hulk could fly. So he's not (laughs) without sin. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Ang Lee's version of the Hulk is it is. It predates the MCU, so it's definitely not in that style. And, um, you know, he was trying trying to invent a a film language that, you know, drew from comic books. So you get split screens and, you know, moving from one frame to the next. And it was a very, you know, it was a big budget film, but it was also very experimental. And, yeah, it, it didn't really fly. But, yeah, I have a soft spot in my heart for it. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon... I don't like wire work in martial arts films and that was the worst about it.
1: I I was at a film festival where, well, I can't say who it was, but someone who worked on it said if this were a Hong Kong production, there would be at least five more fights (laughs) and not all this flying around over trees and things like it was well-received in the U S and Europe for people who'd never seen the film, the kind of film it was based on but it was a a big flop in in asia because it's not up to snuff or what it what it's trying to do i think it was certainly gorgeous and 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 listen the greatest the greatest talent you could ever have but Mm -hmm. trapped in this slow-moving yeah kind of pretentious fantasy thing that yeah but i mean it certainly made his career here was that i guess it was yeah
0: So I think the hurdle that you've described that's going to be the hardest to get over is that you don't want people watching your films on TV. You know, much less on their phone or iPad or something. You want them, you want that film to be on a big screen, even if you shot it on an iPhone.
1: Yes. Or at least a screen with that groups of people have to all look at together. Mm-hmm. I'd even go for watching parties on a on a big television. <laughs> but I don't know. I I mean I the my cohort that made films during my time when I was making films, the only ones left that are still working are all doing serial television.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that never, I, I really came out of theater. The the I, I never was a big TV watcher anyway, you know? So, uh, and I don't know, they, they, some of them have financed their own features after making enough money in television and all of these films have just disappeared into the masses of streamers without a trace it's pretty discouraging i do a lot of i have i've been a photographer since actually i had a darkroom when i was seven years old wow and part of my interest in filmmaking had to do with photography and i i do a lot of photography now uh in digital but um i make a lot of prints and my photo releases are all print only i don't put them on instagram i don't have a website i just sort of make fine art prints that I have shows of and hang up and then they go into storage. Same reasons. I think Instagram has ruined photography. How so? Because it's taught a generation to only look at an image for one or two seconds. Hmm. And I've, I've seen this. And one of the reasons star photographers have, have gone, have started printing their work larger and larger is because when you uh, cindy sherman everything is six feet high now when you when you enter the the room in the gallery as you walk towards the picture you know you're getting 15 seconds of this giant thing shouting i am very important which is why i'm as tall as you stare at me for a few minutes i'm not a i'm not a two inch high instagram square i'm i am like a history painting see i'm the same proportions as a history painting you know in the european galleries of paintings And I and I used to do artist books and, uh, you know, I do limited editions of 50 or 100 books about a subject or something. And now I've even seen that where you'll give someone a book and they may even be knowledgeable about, about photography and they'll look through that book. Oh, my God, these are wonderful, wonderful 80 page book. Wonderful, wonderful. Shut in 90 seconds, you know, and they think they've looked at it, you know, and they they haven't really looked at it. So now I, that's one of the reasons I, I, have to, I, make big, I have a big format printer and I make large prints because it kind of forces you to slow down. And actually, I have a, a gallery space in, this, in the studio building I'm in, and I, I had a show of 180 photographs. And I've never believed in wall texts because I feel they explain stuff you should be able to get out of the art. Mm-hmm. But now I've realized that museums have begun having bigger and bigger wall texts because people will stop and read the wall text. So it's literally like a pause instead of flipping through the pages in a book, it's another, you know, they'll read the wall text. Then they'll look at the picture to try to figure it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. My, my takeaway from this last show was that I, I have to write a lot more copy just to trap people like just cause they're being polite and they have to read the, the one paragraph before they look at the next block of pictures. But if they spend 45
0: seconds reading text and then 10 seconds looking at the picture, I mean, have you really accomplished anything?
1: Yes, it, yes, actually yes, because if, if I get them from one second to 10 seconds, okay. that's a very big you. deal. The sad, I mean, I literally put the show up for a month and part it, I had some wall texts and I discovered that people interacted with the wall that had wall texts much more closely than the other walls.
0: I suppose, if nothing else, you know, having read the wall text, they'll look at the image long enough to find some correspondence between what they just read and what they're seeing.
1: Right. So you don't you don't have to explain the art. Mm -hmm. My wall texts were actually anecdotes that are not in the pictures, but they were part Mm -hmm. of the narrative. Mm -hmm. And, And I felt very good about that, that I wasn't saying this paint, this photograph here, you can see there imitates the Neo, uh, (laughs) it told you things about the characters in the pictures, but not what was happening in the pictures. I I don't know if you know, this artist, Sophie Cal she's French and not familiar. She's, she's been a working artist since the seventies. I think one of her early projects was she got a job as a stripper and then she had her friend photograph her in black and white while stripping and interacting with the audience and then she made a book out of it so she sort of does and and another project she did is she got a job as a maid and when cleaning people's rooms she'd dump out their trash and photograph it and find clues about who they were and go through their clothing Hmm. and she now when she has shows she often has she's a little bit like nan golden she she does a lot of self-referential photography and photographs of lovers and friends and things and over the years that i've seen her shows now she has very lengthy it's almost like a novel she'll have a picture and then a page of a book almost and it takes if you really want to read her stuff it takes an hour or two to go through the whole gallery and the last time I, this is i don't know the last show i saw was seven eight years ago and the time i was really annoyed by all the text, but now i see she was looking ahead to, uh, to the day when nobody could actually look at a photograph anymore, you know, and it become partially a text artist as well as a photographer. When I was in New York, I would
0: regularly, like, I think it was the first Thursday or first Friday or something. There's a bunch of galleries in Manhattan over, you know, by the, uh, the Hudson river over on the Western side of the island. And and they would have uh, just one night where all the, the galleries were open and there would be free wine. Mm. And so the galleries would be filled with basically broke young people wearing their yeah. best clothing, pretending that yeah. they have some business being in this gallery, like they might possibly buy yeah. a piece yeah, of good, art. Good way.
1: Good. I, I, I great <laughs> audience to get though. I mean, yeah. One day it may grow up, get rich and buy some of this work. So, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well, I was already in my forties when I was doing that. And I, you know, I I was just there to be, to, you know, fill the room, basically. Like there might be, if you've got 30 people in your gallery all drinking your free wine, there might be two people in there who are actually in a position to buy some art. Yeah. And those two people are going to respond better if there is a room full of, you know, stylish, young, half drunk people uh,
1: in conversation. But the real buyers have already seen a preview and, Yes, but there you, you never know you may get a new a newcomer who is a crypto millionaire or or was. Yeah. Was a crypto millionaire and no longer can buy art cuz they're worth $40. But
0: Well, the people who got in in 2012, they're they're still sitting pretty. Yeah i mean bitcoin is at at half of its all-time high it's down to thirty thousand dollars a coin right now you know whereas when it went up to twenty thousand a few years ago people said oh it'll it can never sustain that and it didn't you know it plunged back down but yeah you know it's it's terribly volatile but over time it it certainly does increase in value and there's plenty of rich people who got that way with bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies
1: (laughs) (laughs) well let's not turn this into a bitcoin conversation (laughs) here come the cops (laughs) or was that an ambulance? No, that's cops. Okay. Unfortunately, my studio space here is on a main, is on a main drag. It has great Mm -hmm. light, but it's can't record sound here very often. I mean, sadly, a lot, a lot of sirens going by or people with, with boom boxes in their cars. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I recorded a podcast when I was living, you know, in a, in an apartment in Brooklyn and uh, there's a lot of stopping and starting again. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Try shooting a movie here. Oh
0: yeah. With a podcast, it's just, you know, just me talking into a microphone. It's, it's not, you know, lots of people standing around all expecting it to be, get paid for their time, whether or not you're shooting. Right. We also had, you know, the, the neighborhood I lived in, it was the Fort Hamilton Parkway stop on the F line. Uh huh. Sure. And we had TV shows and movies shooting there all the time, like all the time you'd have the big Krieg lights, uh, just, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night and it looks like it's noon. And, uh, you know your car would get towed but it wasn't the police towing your car it was the production company yeah yeah and they'd leave a note like stapled to a tree or something saying, yeah yeah we, we put your car at this address
1: yeah it's, it's here just go get it you know we haven't <laughs> exactly. taken it away it's around the corner yeah yeah double we're parked. Not, yeah. we're not the cops
0: and you were parked legally but we're moved we towed your car anyway sorry yeah <laughs> actually they never say
1: sorry it's like i'm i'm very puzzled by i think a lot of productions where they where they put up a bunch of trailers in Brooklyn and they shoot in interiors of stores and apartments. I, I'm just astonished that we don't have a back lot yet in a, you know, Astoria Studios or Hudson Yards or... or um, like It's so much trouble to go and shoot scenes in a brownstone, lighting them you know, and you have your makeup trailer and your wardrobe trailer and equipment. And every time I walk by one of these shoots that have emptied out blocks of an avenue or side streets, Half the time, I think, why why can't they just build a, build a set? Why, why do they need to be out here in public? And I, Some of my movies were hit and run. They were all done with insurance. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they were legitimate. We were filed with the city. But some of them were sort of hit and run uh, without locking up a street and without extras. But the last one I made, I 80% of the interiors, I just redressed our production studio with different furniture and art and things, and it, no one ever noticed. It was all shot in the same room. I mean, I don't know why more more people don't do that. It's, it's puzzling.
0: Well, I think the things being shot in the neighborhood where I lived were mostly exteriors that they were shooting. It was just, it was a lovely tree-lined Brooklyn neighborhood. Even then, I mean,
1: if you think about the backlots they have in Hollywood, they're, I mean, they shot New York City streets for 50 years in, in Hollywood and nobody really noticed much. I mean, like- Right. It, it, <laughs> I, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more. The film industry hasn't done more of that. You know, build some a facade of some brownstones and you can move the trees around to get a different look. You know, park some cars on the fake street. Yeah, it's funny how many cities Vancouver, British Columbia
0: stands in for. How many American cities? Yeah, but again, like why even Why even go to Canada to fake New York? I mean, it's... Because it's cheap. Yeah, no, I guess, I
1: mean, it's cheaper than doing it here, but... But, yeah, the city bends over backwards to accommodate film shoots it does it does it's it's gotten very good about that. It used to be much harder, and you know somebody finally did some math and realized how many jobs d- depended on on film and TV production there was there is a quote
0: from Werner Herzog that I was looking for before we started talking, and I didn't find it but um a client of mine has it just posted to his wall in his office, and it's a a quote from Herzog talking about how, you know, a filmmaker should always carry bolt cutters and like, he's advocating the most, um, unsanctioned guerrilla techniques imaginable. It's like, do what you have to do to get your shot. Spend a night in jail. I fully agree.
1: (laughs) I fully agree. That's, that's, that's really a good idea, (laughs) you know, but like on with, if you're making a film with an iPhone and a gimbal, you can do a walk and talk on an avenue in Brooklyn, and 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 people won't even look. I mean, you yeah, know, they're they just think they're you're busy blogging. staring at their phones. Exactly. They're not even why you know they're or they they you know it's the, the it's hard to do street photography. Like once you could in New York, you could go to Times Square, what, what have you, and get amazing street portraits. Now, when you try to do that, and I've heard this from people who teach photography, everyone everyone is walking down the street looking at their phone. So it's very hard to get like. Either somebody looking at something else or looking at their friend or having a conversation or having an idea or looking lost or having a feeling because everyone is looking at, at their phone now in public. And so if you wanted to do a walk and talk down the street yeah. in Manhattan and you have wireless mics on on the actors, you can get really far. The only problem is the extras, the people walking by may bump into them because they're looking at their phones. They're they're, they're not gonna <laughs> perceive that it's a it's a, a film shoot. Uh, and if you're shooting
0: amongst civilians like that, uh how do you get their permission after the fact?
1: Well if they're in public, if you don't need releases mm-hmm. from from individuals in public spaces, if they're not performing, if they're back on action, you don't actually have to release the ma- the, the crowd in Times Square. So there's
0: there is it's understood if you leave your home you have abandoned any right to privacy you know
1: well right if you're not in a private space and there are but i mean there are a lot of private spaces where you could say hey i i was in church and i I don't get permission to have me in the scene or whatever but right but i mean if you're making a documentary and you're interviewing people you need to release them Mm -hmm. you need to ask them say well this is going to be in a film and sign this paper (laughs) you never know what you're going to get I was watching a,
0: uh, a video about uh, a couple, it's an Australian guy and a Thai woman and their boyfriend and girlfriend and they just travel around Thailand and she was a Hooters girl and she's got this smoking hot bod. So, you know, half the videos are just exploiting that. <laughs> but then, you know, they're taking you on apartment tours or condo tours or wherever. And they were on this beach in Southern Thailand on, on some island. And they were there at, you know, on the beach at sunset and they're shooting their vlog and they're looking around and they're saying, There's all these famous Instagrammers on this beach, you know, looking into their phones and talking and like, we're the least famous people here.
1: (laughs) That is funny. That is funny. I I mean, I heard of uh, one of my daughter's friends was in Venice and she Instagrammed a fountain. And seconds later, her friend from high school rushed around to right where she was standing and had been Instagramming the same fountain (laughs) from a different angle. And they didn't know that they were both in Venice. Wow. That's uh, this why why I don't like Instagram. Uh (laughs) See, I I love Instagram. Uh (laughs) But I'm curious. I mean, I did enjoy, I I curate my Instagram to mostly be about art, Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, writers or painters or photographers or actors or film. So it was a respite for me to flip through Instagram because there's a lot of content I really connected with. Recently, though, I feel like in the last six months, the algorithm shifted a lot. And especially because I sometimes look at the stories feature, suddenly Instagram, I'm seeing far less of what I curated and far more suggested content that's related to something I skipped past in two seconds. And I feel like a lot of the gems that I used to see a lot of are now being buried under Instagram's desire for me to see more ads and to see accounts that have more followers and that, you know, pay, paying for eyeballs. Have you experienced that? I'm curious. What I've noticed with Instagram is that,
0: you know, if you're, if you say you're on Amazon and you're looking at something and you look at three different versions of that thing, then you'll see advertisements for it everywhere. Yes. You know, and I've, I've noticed that Instagram is the quickest to yes. pick up on, you know, what it is I might be interested in. Here's 13 relevant ads in the space of you yes. know 30 different posts. Uh, that's what I've really noticed about Instagram. But I, I like Instagram because I'm only really on two social media platforms, Instagram and Twitter. And Twitter just brings out the worst in people and including me. And uh, Instagram, because it's visually oriented, you know, people yeah. don't go there to do intellectual or ideological battle.
1: I largely agree with you. My, my Twitter is pretty much news and politics. Mm-hmm. And um, I deleted the Washington Post and New York Times apps from my phone, so I wouldn't look at them habitually. And now I count on meta journalists on Twitter to just, post and comment on stuff they think is important. But yes, I also agree that Twitter can get very discouraging if you start reading the comments like, but but I'd I like it as a way of scanning headlines more, I guess, you know, but the discussion is brutal. And I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually buried Twitter in a in a folder in a folder so that I have to tap a lot to launch it so that I I can't just go to Twitter for five minutes, every hour, I've got to decide, all right, I'm going to look at Twitter now for a little while. And I do feel, I do feel happier having done that.
0: Well, if you look at my Twitter now, it's mostly just me retweeting other people's art. Uh And that was a deliberate decision on my part It's like for, for every non art post that I do anything political, anything, you know, cultural, uh, anything contentious, I have to retweet some art or, you know, use an AI uh, a i program to create some you know wild psychedelic art and post that i
1: feel i don 't have a lot of followers but i there I know there're people that like I feel responsible for i really like meta journalists who comment on journalism and sometimes analyze articles and say well let 's consider who 's being quoted here you know is there a bias or not so i i those are people that I retweet. And then I try to retweet fun content as well, like alternating like you so that people who follow me don't go like, Oh no, I can't look again. It's going to be another." Don't want to get drawn back into that.
0: Yeah. Well, what else else
1: we got? I wonder (laughs) if
0: we found our subject matter. (laughs) Like looking back, what would this conversation have been about?
1: Well, um, I, I mean, we did talk about film and filmmaking and, social media and Instagram and looking at pictures and museums and galleries and movie theaters. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad we didn't talk a lot about COVID and the pandemic. Um, (laughs) That's pretty gloomy, but, but like, in terms of like what my predictions for all all of these matters might've been Mm -hmm. pre pandemic are, are all, are all kind of upended by, by where we are now. Like, I'm not sure movie going will ever be what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I have been to some Broadway shows there during the pandemic. And I think theater and, and live music have a better chance of surviving in the form they're in. I don't know about movies. I'm, I think that people may have been trained that they can have, that they can watch movies on their big screens and why bother with the hassle? And the only people left going to movies are like kids on dates, you know, who are going to event comic book movies because it's a way of socializing. Right. But I I think that I don't know whether there'll be an adult film market again. I I was just looking at the list of the films were nominated for best picture Oscars or just Oscars in the eighties and nineties. And they're all prestige adult dramas or smart comedies. And now the academy doesn't want to they don't want to vote in spider-man even though it's a big earner so instead the oscars are a lot of very tiny picked tiny pictures that had very small audiences and that played for a week or two and are streaming and so nobody's interested in who wins the oscars because they didn't see most of the movies you know and and i and i feel that reflects this model that now that adults don't no, nobody really makes movies with movie stars for adults that will get them to go to a theater there's gonna be a big die-off in theaters except for kids on dates you know and um (laughs) i guess that's pretty gloomy (laughs) um i don't know you know what about podcasts i mean everybody's making them the whole market's gonna have to mature i think right because or and substack you can't you can't subscribe to 50 newsletters and 50 podcasts or you're bombarded, you've got to whittle it down to uh, a few I have heard things about groups of podcasters working together, and groups of newsletter writers working together in effect, publishing their own audio, or text magazines, as a way they like curate their works together into one delivery. So you really are getting like a weekly magazine of different podcasts or newsletters. I find that very intriguing, because then you could sign up for a couple of those and then feel like you've covered a lot of ground mm-hmm. like you used to if you got a newspaper, you know, or- A what? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, that's the, the, the form factor in magazines and newspapers though, is a much better form factor than than the New Yorker app, you know? Mm-hmm. Like when you have a magazine, you can you can literally flip through it and get a or or open up a newspaper and you see headlines. You're able to scan and organize your journey through the content. but apps, newspaper apps, and magazine apps, it's all scrolling. So what's put on the top of the homepage, you know, it's hard to go to page 3 and discover the important articles about Cooper Union, you know, putting their their Japanese stores out of business. Mm. Very hard to dis- discover is much harder on a little screen when you're scrolling. I do
0: miss magazines. Yeah. Do you remember Film Threat magazine? Sure. Yeah so i see chris gore the uh you know the publisher of that magazine on youtube all
1: the time yep but you know he's just another talking head in front of a camera no and 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 talking headed and wine serially so it's very hard you know it's very hard to uh it's hard to jump around and, and land on on stuff that may be very valuable but you have to sit through i don't know like i i i like the sway podcaster on the new york times kara swisher but but I can't listen to it. I have to see the transcript, find the part I want to listen to and then jump. Then I hit the play button at minute 14 sans transcript. I often just run out of steam and they always release the transcripts much later than the podcasts, you know, Mm -hmm. she's a really, it's kind of a tech podcaster, but yeah, I mean, that's the problem with all this digital stuff. It's very serial and you you, you there are no entry points in the middle anymore. My tale of lament with podcasting
0: is, is this, when I, like the first five or six years I was doing a podcast, if somebody asked me what I did, I would have to explain to them what a podcast was.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, that changed when I was living in New York and then, you know, I would say, oh yeah, I do a podcast and somebody would say, oh, I love podcasts. And I'd say, oh, what do you listen to? And they would just name three or four different NPR
1: shows. And I'm like, right. Oh God. Right. And they're both <laughs> Actually not podcasts, they're radio shows, you <laughs> Yeah. Know. Uh, and you know, another thing I'm sure is affecting radio and podcasting is uh, commute times, you know, no one's in their car as much, and they're not on, on the train as much, mm-hmm. they have less passive time to enjoy, you know, you can really enjoy a radio show if you know, your drives going to be an hour and the guy who's talking knows your drive is an hour, you know, and, and that you're in traffic and, and the rhythm fits that perfectly. Right. And now that everybody's at home, information workers that listen to npr i i mean i don't actually know about the numbers so you have any sense so like but i have to think they more there's more competition for ears and less time for people to listen yeah i don't know the numbers i just know my own
0: media consumption patterns and i grew up loving radio you know i mm-hmm. i was uh a paying subscriber to NPR stations throughout my young adulthood when I was broke, you know, but I would still, that was an important relationship to me. And now if I have a long drive, I'd load up some podcasts or I listen to an audio book. I I never
1: hear the radio. Right, right, right. No, no, that that's, that's logical. It's just, but you're in Arkansas and I drive my car once a month. So Mm -hmm. I rarely have drive time to listen. You know, I do have subway time still, but not as much as I used to was when I had to get in the subway day in and day out and and had to kind of program my week oh well, I'll, I'll listen to that tomorrow and that kind of thing um but i worked for several years as a i worked as a printer in a dark room printing mostly high-end fashion photography mm-hmm. you know this is during the days of film pre-digital right but you're in a dark room and for hours and hours and radio was a lifesaver you know, you, you, you were in there and you could switch from show to show. And I have to think that people are still doing that kind of work. Probably are playing a lot of podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: when I lived in Vermont, I actually did a radio show and it was a community radio station. And, you know, everybody who worked, who had a show was, you know, also a a paying member of the station. And you had, it was kind of like the you know, Park Slope Food Co-op, you had to do some yeah. non, non-radio non work for the station. Yeah. And it was weird at a radio station events being with the other people who did programming, you know, created programming for the radio station because I didn't listen to any other stuff. I never listened to the radio station for which I was supposedly, you know, this dedicated practitioner. I just listened to podcasts basically by then. You know, radio was already dead for me,
1: even though I was doing a radio show. Radio was already... It had already died for me. I, I mean I kind of liked I mean it was the 90s when I was printing and we would play a lot of you know we play hip hop shows where they'd only play a couple songs an hour. you know they, they'd have mm-hmm. guests on, they'd interview them, they'd have comic bits. the DJs would just argue over things. It was very free form, you know and that's that's nice you know and then they'd play some hits or read some commercials but, but it was pleasurable, not getting 14 hits an hour plus commercials and canned, you know, announcers or whatever. Um, Do you know if, if WFMU is still a thing?
0: I don't know. Okay. That was, I actually did listen to live radio when I was in New York. I'd listen
1: to WFMU. I don't know. I I have a bad feeling though. Yeah. I I, I, I mean, it kind of rings the bell as at least having gone through some troubles or something.
0: Well, they were perpetually on the edge, you know, financially yeah, but Yeah, yeah. It was it was inevitable.
1: Let's let's look up their obituary. What'd you find? Well it is still in existence. Yay!
0: Still hanging on.
1: <laughs> uh, 91.9, the longest running freeform radio station in the United States.
0: All right. It's still going.
1: And it's asking me to donate. Of course it is. <laughs>
0: Yep. Seems to have held on. Good. Nineties radio for me was the late night, like um, coast to coast with Art Bell. You know, I was regularly up in those late hours when I was in college and grad school and Uh yeah, got to hear some
1: wacky, wacky stuff. Yes. (laughs) Harder and harder to surface the wacky stuff these days, you know
0: or you know the people who are interested in it they can just type it into google and they have uh, an endless buffet of the wacky right. you don't have to stay up till two in the morning to catch Terrence mckenna on art bell no I, and i i really
1: believe in appointment television mm-hmm. i i really think that this binging thing is a way for the streamers to shoot themselves in the foot oh i agree where they release the whole season they may get a lot. I mean, they may get engagement during that 12 hours. But I think appointment television where the show is on a Sunday at 9 p.m. and then everybody's talking about it or texting each other about it and, you know, giving away what happened the next day is a much safer model. I, I, I and didn't Netflix just Netflix stock collapsed, right? They just they lost half their. Yeah, well, they're losing. They're losing customers and they're also their guidance is really bad. Mm-hmm. and i think that's because they they have to have a hit show one they have a new hit show once a month is the math and that's very
0: difficult particularly when it's streaming i mean when you just drop a whole season at once right and yes. people they they might watch it over the course of two nights or something and it's right. just a blur in their memory whereas if you watch one installment a week for right. 12 weeks you know you've devoted three months of your life to this thing and With weekly shows like that, you know, I'll watch the show. Like when Game of Thrones was on, I would watch the show and then i would go to YouTube and I'd watch three different
1: people's analysis of the show. So, you know, and it caused it, created a conversation in a way that, that binging does not, you know, Mm -hmm. if you binge a show and somebody else has binged a show and they've seen the first six and you've seen the whole thing, it's hard, it's hard to locate what you're going to discuss or, oh, you're not going to like the rest of it or, Mm -hmm. oh, it gets better. Well, (laughs) I unfortunately just streamed the Andy Warhol diaries with Netflix Mm -hmm. and it's, it's very good work, but if it had been appointment television, it would have been far more pleasurable. It's extremely depressing. I mean, Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol did not have a happy life post being shot by Valerie Solanis. So like, you know, the next, the last 15 years of his life is really pretty depressing and Mm. sort of, six sort of 80 minute episodes and it's all b-roll and they and they had a robot read his diaries and an ai voice shockingly you i mean you just completely forget it's a robot after five minutes oh really oh yeah because i mean andy warhol always tried to affect a very unemotional persona anyway Mm -hmm. so it might have been easier to robotize him than other other people but that works very effectively and there's all this wonderful footage of new york city and the 60s and the factory and but but that it was there to binge i i just i felt like i had to finish because i thought it was all good you know it was all good but like it was it really weakened the the product by being able to binge it it should have been you know once every thursday or something yeah. You know, I, I feel no
0: obligation to finish something. Uh, you know, if it's an entertainment product, well, it, me too. the second it loses
1: me, I'm like, okay, I, I'm, i I'm, I'm completely with you in this case though. I, I felt an urge to be completist because I, I knew a lot about his art and in his late period, he did some work with collaborations with Basquiat who I like very much. So that was like the last episode. So mm-hmm. I had to get through that. Gotcha. You know, Boscat barely outlived him. He overdosed some months later. Oh. Um, yeah, no, no but, but I don't know. I mean, if, if you're interested in the New York art scene of that period, it's very good work. Just don't watch it all at once. I mean, <laughs> well, I wouldn't. I've yeah, I've only got
0: two hours of TV in me a, a day. That's it.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so, like, one hour. One. Hour. Well,
0: I, I've got two, particularly yeah. on Thursdays. Uh, <laughs> right now. <laughs> Star Trek, strange new worlds and um, uh, the halo show, which is terrible. But what I watch anyway, they both drop on Thursday. Great. Yeah. So there's, there's your appointment TV. You yeah. The things that do come out weekly. I mean, it's not yeah. on at a particular time. And it's an event. If, yeah, it is yeah. an event. Yeah. No. And for the people who do, you know, YouTube shows about those shows, they get up at three in the morning to watch it, you know, so they can have a finished product for you to
1: consume, you know, by noon. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm talking about. This, yeah. this is, it's, more, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, there's so many streamers now. I keep discovering that we're subscribed to all of them because I have two, I have a daughter in college and one who just graduated and mm-hmm. they're channels that I've never heard of that I discover were subscribed. I, I don't know, I, I I don't know which credit card this is all on but I'm frightened to, you know, I could go to the movies every day for what this is costing.
0: I'm about to go on a streaming service purge. Yeah. 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 And Netflix is the first on the chopping block, but they I, just released season three of uh, Love, Death, and Robots. So I got to watch all of those before I kill it. I do think that Netflix is, uh, you know, at the front of the guillotine line. Yeah. Disney's going to end up owning all their content or Apple, you know, one of the, the big, pl- or yeah. Amazon, one of the companies where if their streaming service tanks for two years and makes no money, they don't, it's not an existential threat to them because they have so many income streams where Netflix, that's all they do. Right. You know, and as soon as things start to waver, as soon as investor confidence wavers, you know, they could enter a death spiral tomorrow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless they get really lucky with some programming, but that's not, you know, it's magic. It's not not science. I mean. Right. (laughs) And, you know, they for a time, they their strategy was, well, just give
0: everybody, everybody who's any sort of aspiring filmmaker, give them $10 million to go make eight episodes of something. Yes. Um, and some really fun stuff came out of that, but then just a lot of stuff that I would never watch came out of that as well. So I don't,
1: I don't know that it was money well spent, although I'm glad they spent it. Right. Right. Wasn't good for, wasn't smart business, but it might may have been good for cultural culture creation. Yeah.
0: And it, it supported a lot of cultural, you know, professionals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. lot of jobs there, <laughs> a lot of jobs, but I forget, I, re- I read somewhere that there are over 500 American streaming series. Now series or platforms. No, see, there are 500 shows. Oh, okay. TV critics used to be able to see everything. They, it was physically possible to see all the new shows right now that there are 500 shows there, they, they have to specialize because there's no way to actually see all the content and that's, that's not a, that's not a marketplace that can continue, you know, there, there may be a lot of jobs and everything, but they're, they're going to have to, the channels are going to have to start buying each other and they're going to have to chop it, that in half or a quarter before, you know, they're done with eyeballs to consume all those shows, but everybody is yeah. in this arms race of trying to get subscribers.
0: I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I was watching a retrospective on the show, Star Trek enterprise and they you know, the, the person who made the documentary was quoting the viewership numbers that it had the at the time that it was canceled. Yeah. And the idea that a show that had that many viewers would be canceled today is just absurd.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah, it, it was yeah.
0: a mega hit by today's standards. But, yeah, you know, by the yeah. standards of 2003, it was, you know, it was not really carrying its weight. It's amazing. It's a weird world. So, you know, when I look back on our conversation, I think our our through line is the um, the transformation that streaming and digital technology has had on the art forms that we have spent a lifetime learning to love and appreciate. Yeah, that's right. I participate that sounds,
1: in. That sounds that sounds good, yeah.
0: yeah. So now that we've found our topic,
1: Gordon, this was a bunch of fun. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, good luck with this project. Thank you. <laughs> Take care, <laughs> bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: All right, that's my conversation with Gordon Erickson. And in listening to that conversation, I made a few notes and I'd like to touch on a couple of topics. First, I said that I really, really love Instagram. And compared to, you know, the state of mind that Instagram puts me in versus the state of mind that Twitter puts me in, I absolutely stand by that. I love Instagram. But I was listening to uh, a radio interview, I think it was with Jonathan Haidt, and he was talking about the effects of Instagram on barely post pubescent girls. And they'll put up pictures of themselves, uh, often pictures of their bodies, you know, scantily clad, and then they're just waiting for affirmation in the form of likes and responses, but also, you know, getting responses that are not just affirmation. And a lot of these responses may be coming from strangers. I'm a father of two, but my, I have two boys. I, I shudder at the thought of uh, raising a daughter in the age of Instagram. But according to Jonathan Haidt, this sort of uh, affirmation via feedback from the crowd on Instagram, very bad for young teenage girls. So I'm 54 years old. I like Instagram. I like it for sharing imagery, photographs, drawings, short videos, that sort of thing. But I totally get Gordon's point about how Instagram has trained us to just glance at images rather than really spend some time with them and take in the subtleties of them. And that, you know, largely becomes the function of an art show or a gallery where you go and you look at a physical print of a photograph and it's huge, you know, to distinguish it from this tiny little screen that you stare at all day. If you were intrigued by my description of the YouTube channel, of the uh, Australian guy with the Thai girlfriend who used to work at Hooters and, you know, they go around and they do the, the typical travel videos where they're reviewing apartment buildings and hotels and condos and things and restaurants, but with an extra emphasis on her body. Well, the channel is called The Holistic Trainer. Knock yourself out. One thing that really stood out to me, you know, re-listening to the conversation is that I'm a pretty mainstream sci-fi nerd uh, when it comes to my choices of media, and, you know, the sorts of things that I seek out and that I look forward to. And you know, it was Gordon who was talking about a series about Andy Warhol and me who's talking about a retrospective that I watched on YouTube about the making of Star Trek Enterprise, a series which was savagely and unjustly cut short after its fourth season, just as it was really starting to get good. And finally, the thing that I, I want to talk about, if you are younger than me, then I'm basically just describing a world that you missed. But it really used to be this way. And if you're my age, think back and remember how important magazines used to be. In the interview, I mentioned the magazine Film Threat, which was a magazine about small, independent genre films for the most part. Often horror films, but you know, often not. But other magazines that were really important to me, particularly in the 1990s, I'm thinking like Wired Magazine, the first time I saw Wired Magazine, it was the first issue, and I was living in Nagoya, Japan, and I saw it on the magazine shelf you know, at the bookstore, and I bought it, and I didn't really think about how much it cost, but it cost like around $40. You know, I was buying it in yen, I got paid in yen, and it, it wasn't a huge expense to me at the time. But, you know, when I went home and I I did the math, I realized I can subscribe and have this thing mailed to me every month, even paying the foreign postage for less than I spent on one issue at the bookstore. And I did that, you know, and I read Wired Magazine religiously, like cover to cover for years. It played a big role in in shaping my expectations about the near future. Uh, Other really important magazines to me from the 1990s, like Omni Magazine. You know, again, if you're my age or older, remember Omni? Remember how cool that was? And if you're younger, ah, it's kind of hard to describe. You know, It was a science and technology-oriented magazine, but with a really high uh, graphic design sensibility to it. And yet, at the same time, it was published by Bob Guccione, who also published Penthouse Magazine. And Penthouse and Omni shared a very clear, stylistic DNA. It was very strange. Uh, another magazine along those same lines, but even weirder, even sort of more avant-garde, Mondo 2000, uh, where the, you know, the art design got so unconventional as to be obnoxious. But still, you know, a very uh, visually oriented magazine, you know, high production value, really excellent photography, good articles, amazing magazines. And now, today, I mean, I know magazines are still published, but I don't read any. I certainly don't subscribe to any. And I guess, you know, the final topic that I would want to touch on is the future of podcasting. Let me tell you, if I could predict the future, I would be a billionaire and more than likely you wouldn't know my name. You wouldn't know that I exist. I would be a, I was going to say a crypto billionaire, but that brings to mind a a different sort of concept. I, I would be, you know, a cloak and dagger under the radar sort of billionaire, but I can't predict the future. But right now, yeah, podcasting is weird. I started podcasting in 2006, and as I explained to Gordon, for the first several years that I did the podcast, when I told people what it was I did, I had to explain to them what a podcast was. That hasn't been the case for a very long time. And now we're to the point where not everybody has a podcast, but everybody who's trying to make a name for themselves online, you know, who's trying to establish themselves as somebody whose opinion or whose take is worth taking in, they have a podcast. Or they're using a service like Padverb, you know, to advertise themselves as a potential podcast guest. And I think that's great, but are we oversaturated? Sure seems like it. Is that necessarily a bad thing? Not necessarily, but I certainly don't know what will come of it. I I don't know what the future of podcasting holds. But it's a thing I've been doing for over a decade and a half. So whatever form the industry takes, I imagine I'll be a part of it. And speaking of being a part of podcasting, uh, this is not a one-man show. I actually have people helping me out and I would like to acknowledge that this episode of the Padverb podcast was produced by the Padverb team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borizov and Elena White, with music by Slava Borizov. If you like what you heard, please plan on tuning in for future episodes. We plan to drop them every Thursday. And of course, share them with friends, share them on social media. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, you can contact me via email. My email address is KMO at padverb.com. That's P-A-D-V-E-R-B dot All right, that is all for this episode. Thank you for listening. I will talk to you again soon.